Hello and welcome once again to the wilderness. As we arrive at Numbers 22, we're going to see a distinct change of gear in the narrative. Now up to now they've been facing various issues around supplies, water, food um, and of course uh, idolatry. But now as they begin to approach the promised land from the east they're facing new issues and that is the people who live there not in the promised land but around its edges. So we begin actually in chapter 21 verse 10 and I'm not going to say much about that basically it's a bit of a travelogue uh, this is where they went but in order to get to the promised land they need to go through the territory of Ammon uh, east of the Jordan Valley but uh, at the top so you've got Ammon to the northeast and Moab below that to the southeast and so they approach Sihon king of Ammon and they ask him nicely if they can go through his land uh, they've got nothing against him personally his territory is not where they're ultimately headed but the king says no and so battles ensue and Israel makes it into Ammonite territory uh, killing Sihon for his rudeness and also King Og of Bashan which is even further northeast so that's above Ammon um, about level with the Sea of Galilee something like that and so Israel now is firmly established on the northeastern borders of the promised land but what follows in the next three chapters has got to be one of the weirdest stories in the bible and one of the most difficult to make any sense of moab which we said was uh, again on the east side of jordan but below ammon so they're kind of opposite the dead sea really um, get scared when they hear of the way that Israel has smashed up the northeastern territories. And so King Balak, instead of going into battle directly, hires a prophet to curse them. And the belief is if their spiritual power is gone, then their military power uh, hasn't got a hope as well now we don't know much about Balaam we're told that he was over by the Euphrates so in the region of Babylon much further east he's thought to be a non-Israelite prophet but he's obviously one who appears to be in touch with Yahweh in, in some way the other thing about him which is important is that he hires himself out for money so it's uh, pay as you prophesy and he makes a nice little uh, earning from going around cursing people but it's a very confusing story uh, not least in the light of some new testament references to balaam which we'll come to in a minute so he's hired to put a curse on Israel but he says well I, you can pay me if you like but I can only say what God puts in my mouth to say. First of all God tells him not to go back with 
with uh, Balak. But then he's told, well, all right, it is okay to go as long as you only say what uh, I give you to say, says God. So he goes, but then God is angry because he's gone. And so he puts an angel in the way of the donkey, which Balaam can't see. And so the donkey keeps stopping. And every time he stops, he gets beaten for his troubles. And eventually he's had enough of the beatings. So he speaks to Balaam and his Balaam's eyes are opened and he can see that there is this angel constantly trying to uh, get in the way and stop the donkey's progress so you've got a donkey who can see angels when Balaam can't but also a donkey who can speak to Balaam so Balaam apologizes both to the angel and to the donkey offers to turn round and go home presumably seeing the error of his ways but then the angel says now nah, go on anyway uh, which really makes you wonder um, why it is that he's tried to stop him in the first place. Anyway, so he goes along, he joins in some kind of a sacrifice, uh, probably to Baal from the name of the place, um, goes up to a high place where he can see the uh, camp of Israel, the army, uh, and this is where it gets unclear as to how we make sense of this. Do we read this as he stands up to curse them, but as he opens his mouth, blessing comes out instead? Or is he tricking Balak? Was it always his intention to bless them? Uh, he claims again that he can only say what God puts in his mouth to say, and so Balak tries again in a different place with a few more sacrifices to Baal. But again, only blessing comes out. And then the rest of the material is a series of oracles of blessing on Israel and a prediction of how Israel is going to defeat Moab until finally Balak gives up and goes home. Now that story is weird in so many ways. Uh, what are we to make of it? Why is it in the Bible? How does it function? And I think um, our first port of call, once again, we come to our old friends, the sources. And there are at least two here that have been stitched together. One in which Balaam is a good prophet. He hears from God. He uh, can only speak the words that God gives him to say and another tradition in which he is an evil mercenary prophet and this is the one as we'll see that the New Testament picks up as does lots of Jewish tradition as well well first thing to say just don't ask me about the talking donkey I'm going to tiptoe uh, right past him but I do think, uh, buried under this rather confused story, there are some important lessons for us today. Um, I know I keep on saying that, but uh, that's why I like this material so much. It, it has got so much to say to disciples now. 
So let's start by jumping to the New Testament and there are several references to Balaam and they're all bad and they might give us a clue as to the way in and why the uh, more negative tradition is probably the one that we should listen to most closely. So in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 15 um, is talking about apostate Christians who have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam who loved the wages of wickedness. So that's something about people who put financial gain above their discipleship. Same message comes in Jude 11, people who have followed Balaam's error for the sake of gain. And then a slightly uh, different reference in Revelation 2.14, one of the letters to the churches And that talks about Balaam as the one who encouraged Israel into fornication and idolatry. Um, It's quite hard to get that from the Numbers passage, but obviously that has uh, grown up into a tradition. So Balaam is, is the kind of patron saint of people who... Um, shipwreck their spirituality for the sake of financial gain and and perhaps lead others into sin as well. So let's pull out some principles from this. The first thing I want to say is this, blessing and cursing are real. We don't tend to think about that much. Um, If you're an Anglican, you might get a blessing at the end of uh, a church service. But the fact of the matter is words are powerful. Um, And if you have ever studied Berthold Brecht and his stuff about uh, theatre, and if you've ever come across what's called speech act theory... What that basically says is that there are some things that we say which have an actual effect. So if someone has upset me, I can give them a sermon about forgiveness. But I can also say to them, I forgive you. And those three words have far more power than a sermon about forgiveness might do because they have changed the relationship. And therefore that pronouncement of forgiveness actually effects something. Speech makes a difference. Uh, And in brackets, one of my pet hates is when Um, I use the confession in church, at the end of that, I need the priest to tell me I'm forgiven. I don't need another prayer saying, oh Lord, please forgive us. I don't need another prayer which says, thank you Lord that you do forgive us. I need someone to say to me, you are forgiven. We need to rediscover the power of absolution. End of hobby horse. Um, here's another example when I am up front in church I sometimes say I pronounce you husband and wife together and those words 
bring about, along with lots of other words, obviously in the service, a new relationship which comes into being at that moment. In the same way, we know the power of words to harm and destroy, whether that's through bullying, whether it's racism, whether it's parents and or teachers telling a child they will never amount to anything, uh, telling children they're stupid and, and, and what have you. Those things can be curses. When our boys were growing up, we used to have a rule in the family that we were allowed to say that was a stupid thing to do, but we were not allowed to say you are stupid. And there is all the difference in the world between those things. So there is a purely human truth that words have real power for good or for ill, but especially when words are used by those filled with God's Spirit, then that effect can be magnified. So uh, never think that um, the blessing or the absolution are just pointless bits of liturgy. Words have power for good or for ill. Second truth, I think, and this is very obvious, so I'm not going to say much about this, the gift of God can't be bought. Balaam clearly had some kind of prophetic gift, but the New Testament condemns him because he wanted to get rich from it. And uh, we can't help be reminded of Simon Magus in Acts 8, who wanted to pay for the ability to make people speak in tongues um, a bit like a kind of olden days Paul McKenna or, or a trick hypnotist sort of person. Number three, sin can't be trifled with. And so with that background and given the fact that there are uh, very much it looks like two sources stitched together, Maybe we can make sense of the rest of the narrative. God says don't go. Balaam appears to go and pray about it. Now is he hoping that God will change his mind? God then appears reluctantly to agree, but with the condition that Balaam is only allowed to say what God gives him to say. But then almost immediately God is angry because he has gone and so he sends an angel to stop him. Balaam realises that he has sinned and offers to go back but the angel says no go anyway. Balaam joins in with pagan worship and perhaps he tries to curse which is what he's been paid to do but only blessing comes out of his mouth. Now, it's hard to make sense of that sequence, let's be honest. But the whole issue would have been solved if he had just said in the first place, no, I'm not going. God has told me not to, and in any case, his blessing is not up for sale to the highest bidder. But then it, it, it looks suspiciously like, almost as if he's bargaining with God, because actually that, that payout would come in handy. Maybe he's hoping eventually 
if he seeks God enough, he will change his mind and allow him to go, which he sort of does. So, so why does God give in, as it were, to his desire to go? Well, could it be that at the end of the day, God wants Israel blessed? Is it, it's a very strange way of going about it and a very strange person to use. But Israel gets a blessing and is ultimately victorious. Now, if that's true, if that's the way that we should read this story, then I think there's uh, a fourth lesson, which is this. God can use sinners. It would be great if only really virtuous people were used by God. But the Bible constantly tells a different story. When you hear stories of the, the great heroes and heroines of the Bible, they're all flawed in some way. And you don't need me to list you any examples of that. Uh, and yet somehow God gets his will done. And I find that encouraging because... If God only used perfect people to do his will, I'd have so much work to do, I wouldn't get any rest. Fortunately, the rest of you can join in and help. So it's a difficult story. And I have to say, uh, you might be feeling this as well. E even after all this, I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it. But there are some important truths there. Watch how we use words because they have real power. Don't even go there when it comes to sin and temptation. Don't bargain with God. Don't try and wheedle your way out. Just say no. But if you do sin, then expect God to use you anyway. Well, talking of sin, we're going to see next week when head-on battle fails the enemies come at them more subtly speak soon <laughs>